Women in Wellbeing is an Eden Center podcast, highlighting emotional well-being and mental health through Jewish sources and interviews with experts and activists. Our host, Karen Muller-Jackson, is a certified Matan Marala Halakha, Jewish educator, writer, founder of Kifun Lashirut Guidance Program for Religious Girls, and creator of Power Parsha. Just as the mikvah waters create the opportunity for renewal, we hope the insights shared here will serve as a springboard for discussion and rejuvenation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Eden Center Women and Wellbeing podcast. This Chodesh Av podcast is dedicated by Shelley and Erez Markowitz in loving memory of Erez's father, Yisrael Yechiel Markowitz, and his grandmother, Rivka Gottinger, who both passed away in the month of Menachem Av. In the merit of our Torah learning, may their neshamot have an aliyah. As we move from the 17th of Tammuz toward Tisha B'Av, Rosh Chodesh Av marks another stage of intensity in this period of mourning for the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. The system which Chazal engineered to commemorate the Chorban is based on the Jewish observance of mourning in general, Hilchot Avelut. Mourners refrain from celebrations, and the Shiva framework forces an individual to pause the regular rhythm of life and actively remember the person who has passed away. Turns out that modern psychology demonstrates that there is great wisdom in the process of Avelut as one goes through this grieving. After these short Torah thoughts, which I am about to share, I will be speaking with therapist Devorah Korn, who has been working to raise awareness about preparing for loss, coping with illness, and end-of-life issues. So stay tuned for our conversation about these important topics, and in particular, how they affect our well-being as individuals and couples. Both Chodesh Av and Hilchot Avelut have built into them a process of grieving and stages, which help a person connect emotionally with loss. Both give time to pause and mourn, and also encourage emerging from the mourning while carrying and sanctifying the memory of the person who was passed away. With regard to mourning the Mikdash, for three weeks we build awareness and focus on what was lost. From the 17th of Tammuz, we begin to limit celebrations and listening to live music. From Rosh Chodesh Av, this is intensified as we refrain from drinking wine and eating meat. These interruptions to regular life remind us of the significance of the Chorban for the Jewish people. At the same time, Chazal found ways to bring the memory of the Chorban into Jewish rituals and life in a positive way, leaving a part of our home unfinished or breaking a glass under the chuppah are ways to carry the memory of the Beit HaMikdash and what it represented into our private bayit and life. Hilchot Avelut also contains stages. First, we have Aninut, where everything stops. An Onen, before the person who has died is buried, an Onen is exempt from fulfilling positive mitzvot. Rav Soloveitchik writes about the deep psychological wisdom built into the stage of mourning, where one can't ask someone who has just experienced such devastating loss to continue as usual and to be expected to daven to Hashem. Yet, the next stage provides a framework where the mourner carries on with mitzvot, but is surrounded by community and actively speaks about the person they have lost. The next movement, from Shiva to Shloshim, and from mourning one's parents the first year, are all time markers to help a person move through the loss while allowing different people to cope in different ways. The commemoration of Yartzeit and the active dedication of Shiurim or other forms of Chesed is a way of keeping the memory of one's relative alive. While Judaism contains great wisdom on the mourning process, be it personal or national, 
There is still so much which is not talked about openly as people cope with illness, death, and grieving. My guest, Devorah Korn, will be joining me in a moment to provide wisdom and practical advice on how to navigate this challenging time in our lives. Devorah Korn is the co-founding funder and president of Life Store, Gisha Chaim, an international nonprofit organization that addresses meaning, spirituality, and quality of life for patients, professionals, and families facing a life-threatening illness, aging, and end of life. Devorah was the founding chair of the Israel Spiritual Care Network, an organization of 22 agencies, which led the development and professionalization of the field of spiritual care in Israel. For over 30 years, Devorah has lectured and led workshops throughout Israel and in the U.S. Her clinical work as a family therapist focuses on loss and illness and end of life. Devorah was voted as one of the 68 Extraordinary Women in Israel by Times of Israel in 2016. Devorah and her husband, Dr. Benjamin Korn, with whom she founded Life Store, are active in philanthropy and community and live in Jerusalem and Caesarea. As we approach Chodesh Av, when we are in a period of mourning over the Horban, the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, this is an appropriate springboard to think about the Jewish approach to grieving and loss and how this relates to women's well-being and to couples' well-being. Uh, Devorah, you have been working in this field as a therapist, and so I want to thank you for joining me in this discussion today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm going to jump right into our questions. Um, as a family therapist and a grief counselor, what are the different ways you have seen people grieve and what would you consider healthy approaches to grieving? So first of all, um, before we even define those uh, healthy approaches or not, it's important, I think, to just make seder, make a little bit order about some of the terminology that sometimes gets confusing, because I think it'll help us as we speak. So, so there's grief, and we'll define that in a moment. There's the word bereavement, which we're all very familiar with. Bereavement is a state of having lost a significant other to death. And I'm, I'm purposely saying that because we may touch upon other losses in this conversation. Bereavement is classically about a loss to death, sometimes a pet, but usually a human. Um, grief is the personal response to that loss. It's something that happens in response to that loss. And as we know, there are many aspects, and that's what we'll talk about probably, that color what that personal response looks like. I will say there's physiologic responses to loss. You know, people feel physical symptoms to loss in the grief process. Uh, and then there's the term mourning. And, you know, when we talk about practices and rituals and minhagim, you know, that's when we talk about mourning, which is often thought of as a more public expression of loss. The identification from the outside of somebody as a mourner doesn't really define their process. It labels them and puts it in a context socially, mostly. So, so you asked the question about different responses to, to grief, and this is one of the questions I love to answer because I love to debunk how people think about, you know, healthy grieving. The truth is, there's no one way to grieve. There's no one journey that people travel because our grief is colored by who we are, who we're grieving, what the relationship was like, how the loss happened. You know, was it traumatic? Was it expected? Which doesn't necessarily follow suit for everybody either. 
how um, how a person's attachment in general in their world is, how secure they are, what belief systems they have. You know, we are, if we're grounded in Emuna, there's a lot of data that shows that actually people with faith do better. They suffer less. Doesn't mean it doesn't have pain. So grief is a very idiosyncratic process, just as people are. Now, when people say what's healthy grieving, you know, again, grief is the personal response, right? So the response, what we do in response to the feelings that we have, then we have choices. And there we can choose to practice certain things. And we'll talk about the rituals that we have, which are tremendously helpful in our tradition. Um, We can choose to do different things. Many people take on causes as a way to manage the feelings they have. But the grief process is really that internal response that goes on. And it's very, very important for us to honor that uniqueness and to recognize that we often have very little control like as any other human response, you know, we have very little control over the feelings we're going to have. And we should really be mindful of that as we look at ourselves and as we look at other people in our lives, because they're going to travel the journey maybe very differently than we might understand it to be appropriate or healthy. There is, you know, there is pathologic grief. Grief in itself is not pathologic. The feeling of pain is a healthy human response. If you get hurt and you don't feel pain, you're actually in trouble, right? If you cut your finger and you don't feel it, or if you burn yourself, you're in trouble. So we're wired, hardwired. And John Bowlby, one of the great psychologists, spoke about that. I mean, we're hardwired to feel pain when we have a detached um, relationship, right? And so when we lose somebody, we're going to feel pain. That in itself doesn't make it pathologic. It's a healthy response because we have sustained a loss how that translates into our function how that how long it lasts how how painful it is you know is it so painful that we can't live with it and people are at high risk for self-harm often when they've had a loss they're high risk for depression i mean the the spouses there's studies about the spouses of people who have lost somebody having a 50 percent higher mortality rate you know dying of a broken heart you know, it's classic terminology. And so, you know, I think we, we need to understand that there's healthy, the healthy response, which is painful, which is sadness, which is confusion, which is hysteria sometimes, which is all kinds of things. I mean, sometimes it's relief. You know, we have to re- acknowledge that there are losses that come with a sense of relief. If somebody has suffered, if a loved one has suffered, we might feel for that person and for ourselves, maybe somewhat selfishly, that there's a sense of relief. And that those are hard feelings to hold, right? You know? You're supposed yeah. to be sad, but on the other hand, so so there's the myriad of range, and I think the most important thing is for us to honor that these are individual journeys, and we want to make space for people's responses. We want to hold them, we want to support them, we want to reflect that we care about them, we want to listen, we want to watch if they're at high risk, but we don't want to smother people with too much because because it's a process that, like many processes, will will evolve. Most people don't need treatment for grief. You know, I have people calling me sometimes a few weeks after a death. Oh my God, my mother's not waking up in the morning. I'm like, three weeks. I mean, these get through the show. You know? yes. But I mean, there's a period of time in the literature. People talk about up to two years mm. now. Wow. Wow. 
you know, I, wow, just I, I have questions uh, rising as a, as you were speaking. I had a number of questions popped into my head. And mm-hmm. one thing I'd love to think about is also um, this, this issue of um, we do have prescribed tradition, as you mentioned. Um, but I think that what's interesting is that that's particular, you know, and I talk about Hilchot Avilut, uh, the laws of mourning in Judaism, it's for, you know, certain family members. And then there's all these other people in your life that you may feel grief for or your people. You know, if you live in Israel, there's there have been um, in particular over the past month or two, you know, quite a few incidents of uh, feeling grief. And so it's interesting how to what sort of what what, what sort of space is given to that, if not um, in Jewish law, then at least in um, in our reality, psychologically. So I'll just throw that out there as a as a as a thinking point, a talking point for later on. Um, but since we mentioned the laws of Ave Lutz, um, I'm curious to hear what you see as unique, uh, uh, what is unique about the laws of Ave Lutz um, from the perspective of approaching this as a modern therapist from modern psychology? Um, how did the two fields go together well? And, and are there times that they sometimes um, come into conflict? First of all, if Chazal was brilliant in any aspect of the human condition, this is where Chazal shines. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you hear this in, in any realm, secular realms. You, the need for ritual, the need for structure, the need to contextualize. I mean, just in general, the naming of it, the 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 um, the reality orientation around what we do when a person dies. You know, here in Israel, in particular, when we talk about a burial, you know, there's no sugar coating. Mm-hmm. that process anybody's ever done a tahara or which i had the privilege of doing when we lived in cherry hill new jersey it was a small community and my husband and i were among the volunteers i mean you see how how the reality of, of knowing that this is a person that uh, neshama that left the body and that the body still has holiness but it's a body you know very grounded in reality and you know here when we bury somebody without you know, an Aaron, and you see the shape of the body, that's really grounding. There's nothing sugarcoating. It's not like lying and stay, you know, with makeup on and the mortuary and, you know, doesn't, doesn't Uncle John look wonderful right now when he's been dead for a week, you know, <laughs> lying in a bomb, right? So, so from the standpoint of, of helping a person know that this is real, mm. that is one thing that Judaism does not escape. It puts it out there. This is part of life. And I think, you know, there's tons and tons in our tradition about facing death, talking about death. I mean, from Bereshit, you know, when you have the famous death scene with Yaakov, right? I mean, this is a this is a scene that we are, it, it, it's in our minds, you know, with the brachot. And, and so knowing that death is part of life is a very, very part of thing. And, and rituals that follow that also parallel a lot of the needs that as a rule, and again, everybody does things differently, but as a rule, you would expect people would would be benefiting from, you know, the idea that you withdraw from your normal role in society and gradually re-enter. I mean, that's that's something that people tend to want to do because they have to make sense. You know, we'll talk in a moment, I hope, about the whole concept of what grieving is. But part of that process is reconstructing a new world. You know, a person was there and beyond our comprehension. I mean, really, I talk about this all the time and I remind myself, I really do not understand what I'm saying. When I say a person has left the world because they died, we can talk about that in terms that we truly understand. We have we have buzzwords, you know, the neshama left, and 
but we really don't understand what any of this is. It's too beyond our capacity, right? So we have these structures that kind of ground us in the reality. And so a person retreats from, from being part of their regular life and then they gradually re-enter. They don't go back into everything, you know, from the shloshin to the, you know, some people do monthly things as ways of also marking every month. But, you know, all the way to, you know, the Hakamat Merkseva, if it's here at 30 days, if in America, it's close to a year. But, and then finally, you know, at a year, and then every year, and then every year, we go back to that moment. And for some people, it's literally going back to that moment with a lot of pain. You know, I remember one of the first times I stayed in for a Yorkshire, for Yister. And I was like, you know, I saw my grandmother crying for all her lost sisters in the Shoah. Like I was probably about seven or eight. I think my parents weren't there and I just had nowhere to go. And, you know, all the kids were left, but I was, and, you know, so like people go back, people go back to that moment because, you know, you never fully resolve any loss. It's always part of you. And so I think, I think the brilliance of that is can never be understated. I think the other side is that, you know, there's a lot of space for the individuality. These are minhagim, you know, this is, this is not dogma. There's a lot of, I mean, you go into Shiva homes and you'll see all kinds of rhythms and all kinds of tempos. There's no like what we have to say. I mean, we are supposed to be quiet to give space, again, to give space, to give yeah. that person their way of doing it. Very hard to sit quietly. I mean, I don't know how many Shiva houses you've been to where people actually sit, but it's yeah. very hard to do. Yes, it's very hard. I've seen quite a range. Yes, <laughs> it's critical, right? Right. Yes. I mean, we heard, you know, he didn't have the words, right? And we learned from that. And so, from from our perspective, I think from therapists who work in this, we we're so blessed to have these rituals, and we're also blessed to know that people can choose within that to navigate the comfort zone. I think Kaddish is probably the the most powerful. You know, you talk about people who don't have to do things. So, you know, arguably women don't have to say Kaddish. It's actually a, a thinking that um, that if if, that, if you're the only blood relative, I think Rabbi Lamb even said, if you're the only blood relative and you're a woman, it's optimal over, you know, another relative that's not a blood relative who might be male. And then yeah. there's a lot of... There's quite a bit of the halachic literature on this, yes. And we can exactly. make a little bit of a whole other on this. <laughs> right. Nonetheless, the idea that you have a context, that you mark the time, whether it's once a day, whether it's three times a day, and you set aside the time, that allows, you know, in our work, what we always talk about is helping people take the time but not have it flood their whole day. Right. When you know you have three times a day or one time a day or one time a week or whatever people choose to do, they can take the rest of the time a little bit more freely. So there's tremendous brilliance. I mean, to be honest, do I see conflict? You know, you talked before about the people who don't fit into the boxes, you know, of the of the grievers. I think that's where there's a little bit of um, uh, dissension and discomfort that people might have where they feel so much like they should be among the mourners and they're not. And, you know, there's even a term disenfranchised grievers. I mean, there's wow. this idea of mourners. And wow. this idea that you don't fit into a category, you know, yeah. you're just great. And I think we have to have tremendous sensitivity. I was just at a shiver the other day of a, of a couple and her father died. This, this couple had been friends in second grade. They were married sweethearts in high school. They got married. And this woman's father was the second father to this man. It was his father-in-law. But any anyway, he was a big part of his life. And when we called and said, you know, when we called the husband who wasn't seeing Shiva, right? We said, you know, we're going to try to come. And on their hours, he said, please try to come when I am there too. Right. And I could hear him saying, I need also the yeah. hug and the support and the comfort, yeah. even though I don't have a label. Yes. Right? Yes. Well, so actually, 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. Interestingly, the Shulchan Aruch does actually mention specifically father-in-law and mother-in-law as a potential category of there being not the same level as a father and mother, but certainly in, in you know, uh, over history, people often lived with their in-laws. And so they really became, you know, uh, it, it had, uh, it became a very close bond with all of its challenges as well. Um, I, I'm gonna... or, 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 or converse. I mean, I sat yesterday with a woman who had lost her mother, and she, technically, you do not have the dinay of elut for a parent who is not Jewish, right? And I said that that just doesn't sit with me because you follow all. She's been she's been Jewish for 30, 40 years. I mean, she's this is not new to her, right? She follows everything. I said, and you know, it depends on are you sitting, are you doing the morning process and the grieving process for you or for the other person for her she took upon things not a lot you know if you can't it's not that you can't do it yeah um but I was that always also troubling you know yeah. how, how, so I mean there's conflict yeah but I think there's plenty of space to ad hoc move into those places and to learn from what those things offer and to integrate them maybe not exactly in the same way yes I agree and I think that's really beautiful uh, I'm going to pose another challenge to you, which is something I've been working on um, with uh, with Dr. Naomi Grummet of the Eden Center, and um, and which hopefully you'll be hearing more about from the Eden Center going forward. Uh, sometimes a woman uh, has a bit of a conflict, a bit of a dilemma, as both a woman and a couple, I would say, as let's say she herself is observing Avelut, and this might come into uh, coincide with the time of uh, mikvah immersion or a time. She's supposed to be preparing for mikvah. Uh, and there are halachic issues and concerns which come up. I'm not going to get into it here because hopefully we'll we'll be sharing more about that in the in the future. Um, but these the issues that can come up may uh, there's a there's actually a prohibition to have sexual intercourse during the time of avilut, and um, and then there's questions of the levels of physical touch that's permissible, um, and so without uh, getting into definitive answers here, I'd also love to hear from you about the psychological aspects for um, dealing with when a, a spouse is grieving a loss. Um, what are the various approaches for uh, for for the wife or husband um to help through this challenging time yeah um yeah there are a lot of halakhic challenges and i i think uh, i'm glad we're not getting into that <laughs> um you know they're ranging but the, the, the issues ranging from you know going to the mikvah and everything that comes after that being together there are tremendous tremendous strains on a relationship anyhow in those times potentially and then there's a strain on a relationship when somebody is going through a grief process. And what, what, what's a strain on the relationship when somebody is mourning? And it's really important to kind of broaden the lens is to say, it's not about right or wrong, good or bad. It's about just not knowing. The person themselves not knowing what they need and the person around them not knowing what they can do, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, there's this, something has been wrenched out of your life. And by the way, it's, Attach healthy attachments, obviously very hard to sustain a loss, but conflicted attachments, very hard to sustain. You know, how do you make sense out of the loss of an abusive parent, for instance? Right. Okay. Right. So you have this person who sustained this loss, who's trying to literally reconstruct their life. You know, the work of Holly Priggerson and Robert Niemeyer and Doka, these are the Godolium in loss. And they, they all talk about this tremendous destabilization that a person goes through, no matter what the loss is and a need to restructure and reconstruct 
a life and put meaning attached to it. You know, how did this happen? What does that mean? My identity is different. You know, am I the mother of, the daughter of, the sister of? How does my world look now with this piece of puzzle, huge piece of the puzzle, small piece of the puzzle? It's not there. It's a space. And so, you know, when I think of couples, and I do see couples, and in Life Store, we train a lot of people to work with couples in the organization that we found. And one of the things we always emphasize is that you need to stop and say, we need to re-recognize ourselves, and we need to then figure out what we need to ask for. But only after we allow ourselves to look at what do we need to reconstruct our way of looking at this world. So you take a husband who wants to help their wife, and then you layer on that they might have prohibitions of touch. And it's extremely, extremely difficult. There's no easy solution to it other than to say, compassion and caring and empathy and space and to know that you know at least that period will pass too it's not a permanent state you know that look there are a lot of people we deal with and, and we work with the Eden Balaniot you know how about people who have physical disabilities and illnesses and surgeries and all of these times that women have to go to mikvah and then come home and want to be intimate and yet their bodies are not in a place where they want to so here you have this the mind not being in the place mm-hmm. and really in a way too because you know it's a very physiologic response oftentimes grief like we feel icky we feel on people don't sleep they have heart palpitations they don't have appetite so all of that you know you come with your physical intimacy and you're not you're not there your body's not where your comfort is and so yeah maybe you want you maybe you want the physical support but maybe you don't and I think like with any of these situations it's obviously communication that's going to make the difference not every couple has that toolkit either, as we know. Yes. So it's a, it's, a, it's a fragile time. It's a vulnerable time. And I think the more we normalize death and loss and talk about these things in society, then things like couples struggling with finding meaning, it won't be such an outlier because we'll say, okay, this was part of, this part of the package of living. And just like all the other things that couples go through with challenges and normative challenges that we know are part of the evolution of our relationships and our family structure, so too are dealing with losses. You know, if we can, if we can talk normally with our children about things like death. I mean, I, I grew up in a home where my father was a survivor. His mother, absolutely, you don't talk about any of those things. It took many years and, you know, certainly moved me in the place I am today to recognize how, how essential it is to live life. You know, my husband grew up in a family where very educated, 11 years old, his father died of cancer. They didn't prepare anybody. It was a shock. And so, you know, all of that kind of layers, all of that unpreparedness, stigma, fear, shame, all of that would be not, it would make all of these things we're talking about that much. It's painful in itself, but it would take away a lot of the burdens that we see people navigating because it's still quiet. You know, we still don't talk about it too much. Yes. I think more in Israeli society, by the way, because of, unfortunately, our realities here. Right. I think we do actually confront it more. I remember when my kids were in high school and uh, during the second intifada, and I was shocked to myself to think one day I realized that my oldest daughter had been to way more funerals than I had been at this, at the age I was in my late thirties. Uh, okay. She had been to more funerals than I had been to. Uh, uh, wow. Wow. You know, it's so fascinating. I also, we had a podcast a few months back where we touched on this interesting parallel between the worlds of Abelut and mourning and the worlds of, of Nida observance. There's this interesting similarity that there's, 
things that you don't talk about and that it's nice in a way to protect and to um, preserve that for a different stage of life. And at the same time, there's can be some, uh, there's some clear disadvantages because then people are unprepared, as you said. And I think that, uh, that that's really a really tremendous point. Um, I'd also, I'd love to have you say just a few short words about Life's Door. And along with that, I'd like to ask you my final question, uh, which is what advice do you have for individuals or couples who are, uh, if either one of them or both of them are going through dealing with ailing family members or end of life challenges. We've also talked in this podcast about, you know, life bringing these, these tremendous stressors and, and, um, and challenges to couples and the, the, the burden and the, um, and the discord it can, can create, uh, and finding ways to help build each other up through this. So, um, so, so what are your, uh, what's your best advice for, uh, potentially helping couples through a time like that? You have a month. I'll tell you a lot more. Um, I wish. (laughs) Well, first of all, it goes back to something very, very basic, which is normalized conversation, recognizing that these are difficult, painful subjects, recognizing it, not smoothing it over. But understanding that these are part, the normal part of normative mortality, the human experience, no escaping it. You know, I, I always, when I, when I do trainings or different things for therapists and they say, well, that's not my specialty area. I'm like, oh, and you're, the people you see are never going to die and nobody in their life is going to die. How lucky, you yes. know, that's incredible. You know, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not a reality. Right. So, I mean, I think that, you know, when we started life store, we really started because both of us and particularly my husband who became an oncologist. So no surprises there about what drove him into his field, but really more from the standpoint of we need to, as a society, bring this dialogue in, in a safe place, in a compassionate place, in a caring place, in a dignified place. I mean, you, you've heard of stories where people get terrible diagnoses in a very flip way without, you know, the moment's timing of doctor walking down the hallway, almost practically, you know, there needs to be a very strong emphasis on holding a person through these terrible moments of hearing things, but also to always build hope. And in our organization and in the work that I do with couples and families personally, and, and just in general, in the training we do, because what we do is train professionals as we have the Balaniot in Eden, for instance, so what we want to be able to look at is not the end point of the death part. Yeah, that's very much part of the story. But where are we traveling on this journey of life? And if we have an awareness always in our mind of our mortality, you know, if we really, really hold that, not every day in the front, but certainly hold it as part of our existential reality. And then we recognize that like every life transition having babies, getting married, starting a job, there's preparation, there's dialogue, there's people to talk to, to learn how to do this. We always draw parallels between having a baby and dying because there's so many, right? There's so many. But the one thing that you don't really find is a zillion. Now you see a lot of books about dying, but maybe 10, 15 years ago, you know, what to expect when you're expecting. There was like nothing about that. Now Now it's already different. The world is changing. But still in the common parlance, you don't hear people talking about preparing for death and it's a struggle. And when we started Livestore, we said, we need to help people because It'll come at them and they're not prepared. And then the systems crumble. So when I see, you know, families or couples and they're dealing with an elderly person in the family or a young person, God forbid, in the family or a chronic illness, which is deteriorating, 
you know, we see so many Parkinson's, dementia, things that are just uncurable diseases that are fraught with losses all the time. You know, it's not just one loss. It's the loss of the person. It's a loss of their capacity to think and see and whatever it is, right? And so what we want to be able to do is give people a toolkit to say, what can we still do to preserve dignity and meaning when these, in this person's life? And what can we think of when we're healthy that we might project as might be our goal? So we, we work with a model that's called the hope theory model, which basically mostly we work with this because we really believe that hope is such an incredibly basic right to everybody to wake up with a sense of hope. And remarkably, even people with the most serious illnesses can hold on to hope if they feel that there's some goal that they can be engaged in. Sometimes it's doing something like reading a book or writing a book or going on a trip or going to their daughter, granddaughter's wedding or whatever. Sometimes it actually is how they die. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the engagement in helping to think about how they're going to die, even planning their funerals, even planning their matseva sometimes. I mean, for everybody, it's different. But the idea that when we talk about end of life, we're not talking about death only. We're talking about a process. And if we have the luxury and we do in a way, because we can always start talking about it to anticipate and to think and to rethink, then we have, we're primed when the moments are there. We don't have all the answers. We never know what it's going to really be like. I mean, I can tell you personally, I have been in this field. I was an occupational therapist for 18 years. I'm doing this family work for over 20 years. I sit with people all the time who are sick and dying, right? When, um, when I was confronted in my own family with my father's dying, he had leukemia, I was like a baby. I was like, where's my toolkit, right? Because all yes. of a sudden it was me. And I remember that, and, and I, was, I was available and I talked, but like the words did not come as easily as I thought they would have given where I do, what I do, right? And I remember the hospice team coming and my dad wanted the hospice team and we invited them in and I sat there bawling and I said, daddy, this is what you want, right? And I have to tell you, as much as I knew that's what he wanted, a little piece inside of me didn't want to hear that. And even though I knew that's what he wanted, I mean, I knew it. And I knew that we were going to help him with that process. So, so, you know, the idea that we have to keep revisiting and talking about it and knowing that even in real time, yeah, we're not going to get it all right. We're not going to get all the answers, but it, it's like anything in life. You know, there's a, there's that internal life force that we have to recognize will continue to go. There's some people that want to fight, you know, that language that very, I'm going to fight until to live. And then there are people that are so shalam and just letting things go. And we need to know about that. And so I really encourage, and I think this is platform who's ever listening to, you know, to think about having conversations when we're not in stress mode, when we're not in a crisis, when we're sitting around the kitchen table, we have a, a toolkit called the conversation project. It's in Hebrew, it's in, it's, it's in Arabic, it's in English, it's on the life website. It's a, it's a manual that just guides you through some questions. And, and what is the design to sit around the kitchen table, to sit in your living room, and to just use it as a guide of asking questions about what's important, what are my values, who, where do I want to be as my life draws to a close, who do I want to be with me, who do I don't want to be with me, what do I need to do to pull my life together, what brings meaning, these are powerful questions, and I will tell you, you know, we talk about conflict in couples when they're grappling with these issues, most of the time, there is a rough spot sometimes when people see it differently. I will tell you that there are families that see things very differently, either theologically or emotionally, for whatever reason, there are many. But when they overcome and they work through this and they can, and if they do and they understand that it's the person's 
the person who's dying that really what they want to who they want to help and they put their own needs aside for a moment families are strengthened by this mm-hmm. relationships are strengthened by this relationships are strengthened by people talking authentically and saying you know when I go, this is what I want. And I hope you can honor this. And if you can't honor this, let's find somebody else who can, because I don't want to put you in that situation. You know, somebody might think their husband or wife is the ideal person. And that person says, you know what, I can't, I, you know, DNR, you know, which there are many and Rob Sherlow has done tremendous work in this area. There are many cases where you don't continue to save a life. And there are some spouses will say, I, I won't be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you honor that you say, okay, I understand. I don't want to, like anything else in our relationship, I don't want to force you to a place. It's going to be important to me. Let's find somebody else, a Rob, a family member, whatever, a friend. Right. right. But if we don't talk about it, Karen, we're lost. Because then we navigate it in the dark and there's never easy answers. So now then we have nothing to draw upon. Yes. Yes. Wow. This has been incredibly uh, educational and so important. And um, I hope that our listeners, whatever stage of life they're in, will find um, meaning in this and relevance. Uh, Only, obviously, uh, people should live and be well. Uh, But as we said, the important thing is being educated and talking about this and um, really thinking things through before, um, before it's too late. Um, I also wanted to just close to bring us back to the idea of the Chodesh Av and mourning the Beit HaMikdash. I think that um, the the sages really, amazingly enough, had this uh, had this wisdom about some sort of you know before there was psychology, some 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 psychology in their in their approach, the way they preserved the memory of the destruction of the loss of what that meant for the Jewish people. While there's always an element of mourning, but there's always coupled with that, very often coupled with that, um, rituals, as you said, and um, positive, hopeful approaches to life and continuing life. And so I think that that's something that really um, permeates in a really beautiful way. Um, it's incredible to see them in this way, modern psychology and Jewish wisdom um, come together so beautifully. Yeah. So really, I want to thank you. Thank you for being here. And uh, we should all have Nehama and a healthy and and safe and quiet summer. And um, thanks very much. Anytime. This podcast is hosted by the Eden Center, whose goal is to reinvigorate the ancient female ritual of mikvah as a sacred space for women and use it as the natural platform it is to connect to Jewish women's health, well-being, and healthy relationships enhancing Jewish women and family life. We invite you to visit our website, www.theedincenter.com to learn more about our work in making mikvah relevant, welcoming, and meaningful. This episode is a product of the Eden Center. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sponsoring a podcast in dollars or shekels at bit.ly backslash E-D-E-N-P-O-D. Additionally, give us a five-star rating, share this podcast on social media, and encourage others to subscribe.